Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today Jason Goldberg, founder and CEO of Pepo by OST. Jason, welcome to the show. Tomer, thanks so much for having me, and uh, it's really great to be here. Yeah, really excited to have you on the show. I think you have such a diverse and interesting background. So we'd love to hear more about your experience before starting Pepo. Sure, absolutely. I mean, how far back do you want to go? I mean, my first uh, internet company, so to speak, was I was working on AOL chat rooms back in 1998. So... Um, uh so it's, it's what 22 years now of, 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 of you know in the space and um, competing with the uh, icq uh so I, I did work with icq i worked with aim uh, as well and did a lot with uh, community then and uh yeah i went and i went from from aol to uh, um, being one of the product managers launching uh, t-mobile hotspot which was the first nationwide hotspot network in uh, the u.s and then I started a company called Jobster uh, in 2002. I had this crazy idea back in 2002 that people might use social networks for recruiting. Um, and so um, we had uh, an idea that people might, you know, use online networking to find people to hire. And, uh, and so, yeah, we're a little before our time. Um, I think, you know, Reed Hoffman got that one better than we did, but uh, we built some, some really cool enterprise tools to help companies recruit through, through, through networking. Uh, and then uh, in the late uh, 2000s, I started a company called Social Median in 2008 um, and really hit that one at the right time. We were the first uh, kind of social news aggregator where you could find what to read every day based on what the people that you were connected to online were reading. And we rode that in 2008 with the election that year and the financial crisis to from basically from launch to sell the company with millions of users within nine months. Um, and that was a really nice success. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, that was before, you know, basically before the app store. So it was kind of when you could have just a website, you know, and, 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 uh, um, and really grow massive user bases, less competition back then. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- those were the days. Those were the days, but you know, it's okay. Competition makes you work harder. <laughs> it's good. Um, you know, I, I, like to, I like to say today that, you know, like, Back then, you know, just really good smarts and kind of product sense, and you could really build something if you hit the market right. Today, you need to really figure out a pain point and solve something that people really need. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. It's a lot, lot different today. Um, 
And uh, yeah, and well, I'll just you know, round out with the, you know, then after that, I, I so the, the acquiring company was coming to called Zing, which was like the LinkedIn of Europe. I went and was the chief product officer there as a public company. So I did that in Hamburg, Germany for 2009 and helped them reshape their strategy. And it was awesome. I mean, their stock went up to like tenfold since then and really great success. Um, and uh, uh, and then started a company called Fabulous in 2010, um, which morphed into fab.com in 2011 which at one point was the fastest growing e-commerce website in the world. Um, uh, we went from basically a cold start to selling $20 million in our first six months to uh, so was 2011 to 115 million in 2012, 140 million in 2013, and then it crashed. And that was a, a, a million lessons all in one in terms of speed can be something to, that uh, – that helps you, but also give me something that could really, you know, kill you if you don't manage it right. And, and frankly, you know, we, we got crushed by Amazon. I mean, it was uh, the whole story there. And um, I think if you see what Amazon's done over the last, you know, eight years since then, you really get a sense of the story. But we, we were one of the first to really see that like, we built something really interesting. And then um, Amazon just completely crushed our business and the margins. And, you know, they, they, you know, with, you know, free shipping anywhere in, you know, anywhere in the world of, uh, and they could, you know, follow fast and find you know, all the products that we were selling, they could sell. Um, so that, uh, that was that story. But then after that, I, yeah, competing with Amazon is no yeah, easy feat. Really tough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. And so then you know, a couple things after that is, so within fab, we had a really interesting private label, uh, design business that we carved out when we sold fab. So we sold fab in 2014, uh, and we carved out, we didn't sell this, uh, this kind of one part of the business that I was, that I thought really had some legs to it. Um, and we rebranded that as hem, H-E-M.com, which means home in Sweden, in Swedish. And that was a really cool story. So 2015, 2015, we built that into a nice business with good margins and sold that to Vitra, B-I-T-R-A, Vitra, billion dollar Swiss German furniture design maker. Um, and that was a nice little kind of after story of fab. Uh, and yeah, and then after that, I started the company I work on now. Um, so in, in early 2016, um, I looked out at kind of the world and kind of what was happening with, you know, with crypto and digital currency. And I think while a lot of people saw all sorts of things, uh, what I saw was I saw the opportunity to have kind of, you know, really kind of a next generation payments and microtransactions. And uh, the, the seismic shift that I saw was the ability to have you know, kind of zero fee or very low cost microtransactions would be a game changer that, uh, uh, you know, microtransactions are impossible in today's kind of credit card and kind of uh, Stripe, PayPal billing kind of landscape because they take a minimum 30 cent fee and, you know, 2.8% because of what, you know, the, the banks and Visa MasterCard charge them. And you move that to decentralized peer-to-peer networks and, uh, you know, with public validator sets and you can get that down to, fractions of cents. And so what I saw back in 2016 was, well, if we do that and we could create basically tools, let's say the operating system of this next generation payment system, uh, that that could be a really interesting play that you could embed into businesses and basically create the internet of money on a very large scale. And that's what I've been working on for the last, you know, since early 2016. Yeah. So we'd love to talk more about that in a second, but a couple of points on your, uh, I guess, previous experience. First of all, I might surprise you. I don't know if you remember. It's not the first time that we talk. Uh, right. I know you went to the GSB, as did I. Uh, it's my memory. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So years ago, right, when I was at the, at the GSB at the Stanford Business School, you obviously attended that as well before me. Shortly after I started the program, a group of us worked on this paper comparing LinkedIn to Sing. Ah, cool. Yeah. Yeah, and we actually reached out to you. Awesome. And you were so gracious. You took the time and you talked with us. We interviewed you for the paper, right? The idea was comparing LinkedIn to Zing, figuring out, you know, what worked for them. And now I remember it. That's so cool. <laughs> you know, you were a senior executive there, but you took the time to talk to this group of students working on this paper and uh, provided some really great insights. You know, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And, um, you know, my attitude towards that is like, why wouldn't you? You know, it's like uh, I was a student once and I you know, wish I could get in, get in touch uh, with, you know, people who are in that, that position. And I will take the same attitude with, you know, like, I try every product. I mean, I try, you know, I'm just hungry, curious for information, just try to be very open-minded. I know there's some people, they say they're so busy that they're just heads down focusing on their own thing. And my approach is, you know, the only way to, you know, to keep building interesting businesses and products in this space. And I'm really at, at my core, I'm a product manager, product designer is you got to stay curious and you got to try everything, talk to, to as many people as possible and just keep learning. Absolutely. So yeah, it was a it was a fun experience back then, and it's always good to reconnect. One question about uh, Fab, right? Obviously, like you mentioned, it was huge at the time. You raised, I think, what like three hundred thirty million dollars or so. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a unicorn yeah. when when very few actually existed. We were one of the first unicorns, yes. And at one point, I mean, crazy crazy stats. I mean, you think like at one point, and like I remember there was these stats like in the first six, nine months of fab, we had grown our user base faster than Facebook did at that stage, faster than like, wow. And it was, it was insane. It's crazy. Like we had 5 million people sign up for an e-commerce website in like six months. It was like, what, what the hell? <laughs> um, crazy. And I mean, it, it's just going to show like, like, you know, we hit a zeitgeist, right? So we, you know, we hit a kind of a, we had this, the whole fab thing was basically we carefully curated um, design products to help people who are you know less design savvy figure out how to kind of deck out their life and no one was doing it at the time i mean today like you're in e-commerce there's a million of them and there's all sorts mm-hmm. of variations of it we were the first ones to do it we also frankly we were the first ones to really figure out facebook advertising and so you know one of the lessons there is if, if you're first into something that is going to be a hockey stick of growth and you're the first ones to figure it out you can really gain a an arbitrage competitive advantage yeah and in the first you know year we were our cohorts are awesome. We were requiring, you know, people really cheap. We figured out we kind of cracked the code on Facebook advertising. And then what happened is Facebook wrote a case study about us and everyone followed into the same thing and the whole market dried up. Because <laughs> basically it became like, you know, like the cost of acquisition like quadrupled, right? And just right. Like, all of a sudden the advantage we had, like they sold out our advantage. <laughs> right. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so curious, what were your if you had to say like the top two or three takeaways from that crazy experience, what did you learn? Yeah, I mean, I would say look, I mean, first of all, I mean, it, it was it was heart wrenching to go through, you know, building a company like it, we went from zero to hero so fast, and then to go from you know, hero to bust, you know, kind of equally as fast was was a it was a horrific experience for everyone involved. Yeah, um, and uh, I never want to do that again, uh, and. You know, I I said I learned so many lessons. One thing I'll tell you is every business is different, and every business experience is different. I have, you know, one of the investors in Fab was uh, a guy named Howard Morgan, a legendary investor, uh, first round capital. Um, one of the other investors in Uber and many other great companies. 
And Howard was, you know, he invested in Fab before it was Fab, when it was fabulous. Then we pivoted to Fab. And he invested in this company, you know, OST. Uh, and, you know, I, I saw him the other day and he's like, you know, he's like, Jason, if you think back on your you know, experience of the last, you know, 10 years, just think about how different Fab and OST are. Fab was a rocket ship from day one. And we rode that. And unfortunately, you know, we weren't able to kind of cross over to the other side. OST is a slow burn. You're building something that we've been at. We've been product development for four years and we're, you know, we're just, you know, heads down, hankering away and trying to build something that is, you know, build something that, you know, show a use case, get people to adopt it, learn from talking to people, do the next one, do the next one. You know, we have a 15, 20 year vision on this and we know it's going to take time. It's just, you know, every, every startup's different. Um, so I can say like lessons from fab is, you know, it's, it's, um, a lot. I mean, one is, you know, if, if you, you know, first, I, I would never want to compete against Amazon and e-commerce again. I never want to <laughs> yeah, do, that's lesson number one. Yeah. I never want to, I never want to really, you know, push, phys, you know, deal with logistics and physical products again, if I, I don't have to, unless you have private label, super high margins and something really unique and kind of special there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say also just that, um, you know, just as fast it goes up, it can go down. And so you have to really, you know, you know, really think through kind of and plan for that, um, plan for all stages of the business that the people who, you know, are, I think also from a people perspective, um, you know, there's different types of, you know, people and culture you need on in a company at various stages. Uh, and, you know, certain people are really good at kind of, you know, wartime, some people better peacetime. And, um, and I, you see some of the growing pains of companies like, you know, Uber and WeWork have had with those sorts of situations as well, where it's like, you know, hyper growth gets you one kind of culture, but then you might need to transition to something else. Um, so other lessons, just, you know, I'm, I'm at my best when I'm being a product designer, uh, when I'm talking to users, figuring out what they need, and then designing products to meet those needs. And, you know, at Fab, I kind of morphed into an operations logistics guy, and that's not my sweet spot. That, that's that's stick, stick with what you're good at. Yeah, makes sense. Do you think, like in hindsight, you should have moved maybe slower? And I mean, I, I would say, you know, yeah, a couple of things on that is like, um, as I said, you know, we we did about 115 million dollars in sales in our first full calendar year, and if we had as a company as a board had said, let's get the business profitable at this level, well, which by the way back then was absolutely nuts, right? It's not yeah. people think about now. Yeah. I, it's still super impressive, but like yeah. back then, it was almost unheard of. Yeah, but so, but like you're, you know, it's like if we had, had the board meeting room, if we had a conversation of, hey, you know, this is fantastic. Let's get this business now, you know, profitable at really good margins at this hundred and fifteen million. If the conversation was that instead of was one fifteen, let's go for two fifty, you know, and then after two fifty, let's go for a billion. You know, <laughs> then, you know, if we if we had, let's say let's had stopped and kind of kind of iron out the kind of the kind of the the, the unit economics and the business metrics at you know one hundred fifteen to one hundred fifty million. Fab probably would have been a great success, and it would have turned out very differently. Um, yeah. The other thing is just also we, um, as an e-commerce play, I think you know it's, it's we went we went international globally way too fast, uh, and I think for you know for for some types of businesses you can do that if it's uh, less kind of capital intensive and less kind of physical intensive, but for e-commerce play with shipping physical goods. That was it. Was too fast for us to go out. We should have gotten it right in the U.S. and then 
you know, moved overseas. I mean, it's not, you know, it's very different than it's like Airbnb or Uber, where it's basically build a playbook around a digital product and then just kind of put some people on the ground to kind of build the local market. I mean, we had to build operations, logistics centers and shipping, you know, kind of next day shipping all across Europe in addition to the US. And and it was just too much to try to manage that on two continents at the same time. And, and you know, again, like, you know, Hindsight's 2020. At the time, we thought, okay, we're going to own this market and build a billion dollar, you know, revenue company. Not just not billion dollar market cap, but billion dollar revenue company within four years. And it looked like we were going to be able to do it. And then we just, you know, we didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a crazy ride. Yeah. I will say, of, of, of all the things that I'm, you know, thankful and proud of, though, um, you know, of my journey since then, one of them is that so many of the investors in Fab are investors and supporters of the business that I've been running for the last you know, four years. So that is remarkable. How come, right? Because for someone looking from the outside, I would think some of the investors got banned and it's going to be very difficult to convince them to invest in a new business. Yeah, How, did mean, you do that? How did you manage that relationship to a point where they're now investors in your new company? I mean, I, I, I put it this way. Um, we were all at the same board meetings. We all looked at the same numbers. You know, everyone, there was full transparency, full honesty, full debate about the various directions. There was no ever, never a sense that anyone was, you know, doing something nefarious or something that, you know, you know, mismanaging. We all were in the decisions together. And the investors, you know, you know, most of them at the end said, hey, look, we gave it a try. We made some calls that weren't the right call. We had some misfortune with Amazon deciding to really come in and try to, you know, crush us, and which they they, they very much did. I mean, like literally in the first year of Fab, we would sell products and you wouldn't see them on Amazon for a couple of weeks. And then within like the second year, it was like within 24 hours, we would find a product, make some, make it famous on Fab, and then it'd be next day on Amazon with free shipping anywhere in the world. Um, so essentially we were the curators for Amazon. Like we were, you know, it's like, and that's it's just not sustainable. Um, and, but, uh, but yeah, so like, you know, the investors, you know, when I was, when I was wrapping up, you know, Fab and then Hem, um, the first one to come to me was, you know, James Mitchell, who runs a strategy and investments at Tencent. Tencent put, I think it was like $50 million into Fab. Uh, they were one of the largest investors. They re- led the last round. And James said, whatever you do next, we want to be involved. Uh, we believe in you and we believe that you're going to build a great product. And that was, that was one of the most, you know, you know, can you imagine how bad we felt after that? And for someone to tell you that after they, you know, they put so much money into previous business, it really made me feel great. Um, and Tencent's been a great supporter of this current business. Uh, as I said, Howard Morgan from First Round Capital, Alan Morgan, who's on the board of Fab as well, is a legendary Silicon Valley investor. Um, uh, you know, so many folks who are David Bonnet, who was involved, one of the first board members of Fab. Um, he built GeoCities way back when, and he's an investor in, in, in OST technology. And so it's just been great that, you know, for the, for the most part, everyone's been very supportive. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that that's a really important lesson for anyone listening, especially entrepreneurs. You know, when I engage with entrepreneurs, sometimes I get the sense that they want to hide the bad stuff, right? And they want to be maybe a bit secretive about that and paint a rosier picture. What I think many of them are lacking in understanding is that actually by being transparent, and really sharing not just the good stuff, but also the bad stuff and the challenges. Investors get that, certainly ones that have entrepreneurial experience, and they actually really appreciate that. And in fact, when you look at the stats, right, everyone realizes that most startups fail. 
that's just the statistics. So by being transparent and being really honest about these challenges that sometimes you face as an entrepreneur, investors really appreciate that and you can build long-lasting relationship with them even if the end outcome is not always a success. Yeah, and, and look, you know, you, yeah, you, can, you can lose a lot in business, but if you lose your integrity, you've lost everything. And exactly. what I mean by that is like you can recover from so many things. Just you can't recover from lying and you can't recover from people you know, not trusting you or believing you. Um, and that's something that's just, yeah, you got to maintain that. And then, you know, it's a relationship business. And, and then I also think, you know, like you know, in, investors appreciate, uh, you know, people who are product focused, who want to figure out problems, who think about it from a product perspective first, which, you know, I very much pride myself in. And that also people who are willing to persevere and get up to bat again. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Pepo and what you're building now. How did you get into the blockchain and crypto space? And then if you can talk, Jason, about what Pepo is and the problem you're trying to address. Yeah, yeah. So, so interesting enough, in, in 2016, uh, our team, we actually built an app called Pepo. Um, and the whole idea of Pepo was um, we, we saw that uh, we saw that digital currency was coming. We saw that it was going to open up new abilities to kind of monetize in-app actions to enable uh, creators, makers, influencers to um, you know monetize kind of their their creations, their um, to have direct relationships between let's say makers and creators and their fans, their supporters, not to go through platforms and middlemen. And we designed Pepo at first to be a platform for that um, was what basically the idea. And we we actually launched an app that didn't have any of the economics in it. It was just kind of we worked on the kind of the some of the app elements first, and then we dove headfirst really into trying to figure out all right what do we need to do in order to build kind of like economies within these this application because the app we built was basically a way for influencers to create a channel to. Um, you know, post things to, uh, you know, to their followers. And then the idea was then they could, you know, sell things directly to their followers. Maybe it's, you know, kind of tips, advice, answer questions, uh, uh, videos, photos, recommendations, whatever it might be. Um, and so, for instance, we were working with kind of travel and food bloggers who would kind of say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my top 10 list for Madrid and I'll charge you 99 cents for it or create a perfect 48-hour itinerary for you. And, and so we got to like think, or how do we create the economy in this? And how do we kind of get this going? Because, you know, microtransactions is like this holy grail, but they've been kind of impossible to do given the, the fee structure of kind of credit cards and online payments. Mm-hmm. And that's when we dove like headfirst into Ethereum and programmable money. And we had the kind of the aha moment where we realized that, okay, we can do this. It's going to take several years to, to build the technology to make it possible, but we can do this. Uh, and if we do it, we'll do it not just for Pepo, but for all the app, for any app that wants to, you know, turn the like the like into into a value transfer, or to have every upvote uh, transfer value, or to use, uh, you know, a couple cents, couple cents here, a couple cents there to, you know, maybe reduce spam or provide incentives and rewards, whatever it might be, to unlock content instead of paying ten dollars subscriptions to be able to pay a penny at a time for an article. Um, how you make all that possible, and so. We basically pivoted the entire business towards building 
the tech, you know, the technology platform to enable these kind of low cost microtransactions using cryptocurrency and using Ethereum as the as technology. And so from, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, we built a full stack, full stack technology platform. It's called OST Technology. Um, that is by far, you know, out ahead of the market um, in terms of providing, you know, a basically the f- world's first seamlessly embeddable Ethereum layer two wallet um, that you can embed into any app, um, and in doing so, turn any in-app action into a value transfer um, without end users having to know that it's even crypto. Um, for them to be able to use crypto without even having to, you know, write down kind of you know long strings or to sign every transaction, to even know what gas is or any of that stuff. We've we've completely moved removed all that stuff and focused on great user experience um, and built an SDK that is embeddable into any application um, with transactions that can be uh, all that are all kind of you know, you know validated on on the layer two Ethereum blockchain. And then proven back to layer one with our technology. It's a whole lot in that stack that we can go through. But all, you know, done, done. You know, all do, do that with transactions that are at a fraction of a cent each. Um, and that's that's basically what we built. And uh, so we we built this you know solution, this technology stack. Um, we got to a place towards basically April of last year, April 2019, where you know we saw that okay, this platform is usable. It's ready. It's robust. It's you know we had you know we're great with great security advisors and um, we you know we we felt like we we're ready to take it to market. And I looked out at the market and I said you know for this technology to get mainstream adoption, there's a few things that we had to kind of put together. Um, and you know one is you know kind of I said it kind of like I had like my four things. You know one is we needed to have you know kind of tools that are that you know that developers can use and we that's what we had built. Then the second is we needed people who are willing to kind of, kind of you know we needed like some some use cases and proof points to kind of show that this stuff works, um, and the third is we need to kind of say like early adopters to gather neck and then kind of try it and then we need kind of you know kind of then the people that scale it up and follow from there, but for the use cases well we made the strategic decision uh, in April last year to just go build something ourselves and that's where we went back to the Pepo brand and actually very similar to the original concept and we. You know, we did over a thousand uh, interviews with people just talking about their online behaviors and habits and their content creation and consumption. And then we designed an app, Pepo, um, basically to showcase the OST technology, um, to showcase that you can, that crypto user experiences can be additive, not, you know, take, not detracting from the experience that you could have, um, you know, a great kind of user experience where crypto makes the experience better, not worse. Um, and we launched uh, Pepo um, as an app in uh, October of last year at DevCon, and it's been awesome ever since. We've um, it, it on, on both sides. One is we, are, you know, Pepo is an app where you can create thirty-second videos where every upvote carries value, um, so every like carries value. You can have person-to-person transfers. It's the first crypto app uh, with in-app purchase. And cash out options approved by Apple in the App Store work very closely with our lawyers and uh, the kind of the, kind of the regulatory environment. And so we really took care to make it a great experience all around. And now um, the result of that is we have a very active user base. We're one of the top 15 dApps in the world in terms of usage on a regular basis. 
We've done hundreds more interviews with our users of Pepo, the early adopters, and we've gotten tons of feedback that are going into kind of a whole new set of features that we're building to kind of before we kind of blow this out beyond kind of an early adopter audience. Um, and those are going to start launching in February. Some really great stuff that's coming um, kind of in, in coordination with some of the events coming up like Eat Denver uh, and ECC in Paris. And so we're really building some things towards kind of big audiences in crypto. And then we're going to blow this thing out beyond just kind of the crypto world. And then the other thing that's really happened that's amazing is the, the Pepo app has made all the OST technology tangible. Um, and so we've had so many companies have come to us now and have said, we want what you did with Pepo in our app or on our website. And so it's driven, kind of come full circle, driven so much business for OST because um, in the end, we're a, we're a tools business. It's a you know, developer tools to embed a, you know, an Ethereum wallet into any application and to, you know, have you know, low cost microtransactions. And that's, so the, the plan's working, the flywheel is working and we're very excited about where we're at right now. Yeah, that's amazing. So a couple of things I really like about what you just said. A, when I talk to people who are not in the weeds on crypto and, you know, the blockchain space in general, I think many of them realize, oh, I can probably save some money using blockchain and, you know, maybe there are some trade-offs there. But what I keep telling them is like the most exciting thing about it is not necessarily the savings. It's all these new products and services that you're now able to build that just couldn't exist before. Right. And the micropayments example is a great one. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, some people said like what we're building is equivalent to let's say Stripe of blockchain, right? So Stripe is, you know, a couple lines of code, you know, an SDK that you can use to accept payments on a website. And we look as well if if you know if uh you know, AWS databases are the cloud kind of, you know, database. Well, then blockchain is the next gen of that. And if Stripe is the current kind of, let's say, payment SDK, well, OST is the next generation kind of micropayment SDK using blockchain. And that's kind of how, you know, if roughly how we look at our business. And and the idea there is, you know, if you think about if if there was embedded into the internet, the ability in any application or any website to have value uh, transfers with any with any interaction, whether it's you know I upvoted this or I like this or um, whatever it might be, if every four star review or whatever it is, that if you have you know even in like this the the sense or a couple of companies here and there of kind of value transfer, that changes so many things. It, it, it's like you, and especially if it doesn't go through anybody, if you if you basically say. You don't have to give 30 cents to Stripe, 30 cents to Apple, whoever it might be. It's just going directly user to user. You know, it just opens up a whole new internet of, you know, kind of value. And so you think about, you know, there's lots of ways to think about crypto and blockchain. Some people think about it as well as Bitcoin can be the next, you know, kind of, you know, global currency, or is it going to be Libra or, um, you know, what is it going to mean for like just DeFi and kind of, you know, savings and interest rates? We look at it as just very simple as we're creating internet money and internet money is going to have, you know, almost zero fee, you know, kind of, you know, trans, you know, kind of, you know, microtransactions. And that's going to enable hundreds and thousands of new apps and billion dollar new market. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I really like about what you said was that you didn't take the approach of, which I feel some entrepreneurs do of, you know, let's build it and they will come. You built the OST infrastructure, and then you actually also decided to build the consumer app to start 
both drive adoption and also prove the business model. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I looked, you know, I looked at this back in April of last year and I said, okay, so we could go bang our head against the wall trying to, you know, do business development, sales meetings, trying to sell some people something that they don't, they don't even know they need yet. Or we can build them a shining example of what's possible. And then it becomes so much more real for them. And it, 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 it's really proven a winning strategy. And you know, I, I told our team at the time was, if you remember back to when Apple launched the iPhone, there was no app store. Apple made all the apps. Yeah. And by Apple making all the apps, they were able to show everyone how to make great apps. And so when they opened up the app store, everyone was like, oh, okay, I know how to do this. I do it like they did it. The Pepo is our first app and I'll do more too. I'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll create more, you know, it's, it, we look at it as like use cases, beget more use cases, beget mainstream adoption. And you can't go from zero to mainstream adoption overnight. You have to have, you know, we build the Pepo use case. Then people now, okay, there's a social media, there's a user-generated content use case. So now you have companies in the social media user-generated content space. They say, okay, I want that. I want that or a variation of that. And then someone else is going to buy their use case and a variation of that and the next one, next one. And then you you take our technology and you build an e-commerce use case or you build a you know, kind of a offline online use case. And then, then, then people will lean into those use cases. You know, it, it's like, I think one thing people forget in, in crypto and blockchain is people don't buy technology, they buy solutions. People don't buy technology, they buy what job they want to get done. And you got to show them the job that's capable of, being get, of getting done with that technology. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. It's about addressing pain points, right? And in fact, I'd argue the best solutions are the one where the technology is pretty much invisible, right? And the user doesn't even necessarily know that they're using, that the company is using blockchain technology on the back end. They shouldn't care. It's like when I order an Uber, how exactly, like when I press that button, they can, you know, get a car to me within a few minutes. I, do I really care as a user? You know, like do people yeah. realize they're using TCP IP when they send email? The best solutions uh, the one where you address real pain points and the technology, like people barely notice like the technology you're actually using on there. And I feel like the best solutions don't really, and I say that as a blockchain focused investor, the best companies in the space don't put blockchain front and center, right? Because the typical user wouldn't care. What they care about is it being cheaper, faster, more transparent, traceable, and so forth. That, yeah, that's the key thing. So, you know, in the Pepo app, you know, you know, which, you know, as I said, you know, you, you, first of all, it had to be mainstreamed, like in terms of feeling like it's a regular app. So we gave ourselves a challenge of like the, the OST SDK, we gave ourselves the challenge of, you know, if Instagram wanted to adopt this, they would feel like they could adopt it. That it, it would be a user experience where, you know, let's say if every time you liked someone's Instagram photo, it transferred, a, you know, like a cent from you to that person. The Instagram user would not, you know, have any patience at all for waiting for, you know, for transactions to be processed, for signing transactions, for writing down 12 words, none of that stuff. And so we had to obfuscate all the crypto, um, but yet take, you get all the benefit and value of it being, being crypto in terms of the, you know, the, the, the low cost and the interoperability and the transparency and removing the middlemen. And that's what, you know, that, that's, that's our moat. I mean, that's the advantage that we have right now that we're way ahead of the market in doing that. I mean, you, if you, you know, if you download Pepo and you, you know, you check it out, you'll see you can go from download to sending someone a couple cents, you know, in just a couple seconds. 
um, without even knowing that it's crypto that you're moving. Yeah. And why do you need crypto? Can you talk more about the use case? What do people use PayPal for at the moment? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so I mean, the, the first thing, well, that's two separate questions. So one is why, why, why crypto is, is because we were able to set up a you know, technology infrastructure that facilitates basically zero fee microtransactions. And so if I want to, let's say if you create a video on Pepo and I want to you know, show that I like it, so going to support you, I can send you a couple cents and it doesn't cost anything for that transaction. And so I don't have to, let's say in, in the non-crypto version of that, let's say a, a site like Patreon where people support podcasters, you know, it's a minimum of $3 a month with a recurring subscription because of the fees involved. Um, but instead I can just say, okay, a couple cents for you, a couple cents for you for this one particular video. So then you think, okay, now where do you take that next? What you take it next is, all right, well, that could be on the New York Times website, but rather than paying 10 bucks a month, you could just say, I'll pay a penny to unlock this article. Um, and it opens up like a, you know, we start one place by demonstrating what's possible, let's say with Pepo, and then you can open this up to all different kind of, you know, kind of tangential use cases. Um, so it, look, you know, Pepo right now is, it's a shining example that crypto UX can be gorgeous, that it can, it can be additive to the user experience. Uh, Pepo is an app where we targeted first to the crypto community. We said, let's kind of work closely with our community first before we expand out to the world, kind of like Facebook started with, say, high, you know, Harvard and then college students before it went out to everyone. Um, we said, let's get it right here first before we kind of expand too far. Um, and in the Pepo app, it's very simple. People create 30-second videos. It can be about anything they want. If you like a video, you basically send some tokens to the person. Uh, you can also send someone directly any amount you want. So it's person-to-person payments. Uh, you also can use uh, tokens if you want to uh, basically uh, f- for, so for, tokens are used for signaling of a personalization. So it helps curate the experience for other people. So like if you know who I'm supporting and you're following me, then the experience gets better and more personalized for you. Uh, you can use token, tokens are used for spam reduction. So we have tokens being used. You can, you can make people pay some, some nominal amount of money if they want to reply to uh, to a, a video on Pepo so you don't get spam. So people only people are serious. You can get bounties and rewards for best replies. We're soon introducing uh, paid a message. So you can say, you know, if you want to get in my inbox, maybe cost a couple bucks if I don't know who you are as a way to kind of a spam filter uh, for, for instant messaging. Uh, and we're introducing some really interesting things around communities and groups and, cha- and channels based on uh, feedback from early users. So what's great about Pepper right now is it's, as I said, it's both a showcase of our tools, um, but it's also a really cool app in its own. And it's really taken off. And we take the approach of let the community take it where they want to. We, we do, you know, as a, our, our models around user interviews, we talk to people every single day. Um, it's something that I'm, I'm like, it's like I'm religious about on this. Like we do, you know, five interviews a day on most days, 30 minute interviews, or we just have conversations, talk to people and try to find you know, where are the parts that they're passionate about or have a pain point and try to figure out the emotional points and how do we fix them? How do we make it better for them? Yeah, that's really key, right? When I was at Facebook, we kept doing that also all the time just because we felt that just gives us so many insights that we wouldn't we wouldn't realize otherwise. It's one thing for the product team to sit around the table and develop, you know, hypotheses. It's another thing to just talk directly with your users and get their feedback and figure out how can you make their experience better. So uh, 
a couple of questions on what you just said, uh, Jason. First of all, why do you need a native token? Why did you decide to go that route rather than, say, use ETH or DAI? Yeah. Yeah, so great question. So um, one of the first things to understand for, for those who are more crypto, crypto savvy is when we looked at kind of how do you embed crypto microtransactions into any app, mainstream apps, uh, not just, you know, kind of new dApps, but, you know, also mainstream apps. We looked at that problem, you know, four years ago. And one of the first things we said that we would need to do is to offload the heavy transaction volumes that might be, let's say if you had you know, like an app like Instagram or even like a smaller one with 10 million users or 5 million users, you know, if everyone was doing likes all day and every like transferred a token, that's so many transactions, you wouldn't want to have those transactions on Ethereum layer one. So we'd have to first move the transactions onto a layer two. Um, and so- Is that because of the scalability issue, the network getting congested? It's, I mean, it's really a bad thing. I think, first of all, it's like you wouldn't want to pay two or three cents for an ETH transaction for a one cent transaction. So, you know, so one is the cost, the second is the congestion. But the Ether- but we're actually quite okay with Ethereum being slow and costly because we find that Ethereum is for us is like the ultimate kind of bear of truth. So we, so we prove all of our transactions on layer two back, back on the layer one Ethereum. So we, we leverage Ethereum. As kind of like the the security of the overall network, um, and then that network should be slower than like this, let's say like the App Token network, um, uh, because it's it's you know, it's that it's that it is that security layer of you know if you earn a token on layer two and it's backed by a token on layer one, you know that that layer that token is backed by something on Ethereum, so you know that you can always get the value that's locked on layer one. Um, so we wrote a protocol back in uh, mid twenty seventeen. It's called OpenST. Which basically essentially just does that. It is you, you can you can lock any uh, ERC twenty token uh, in a smart contract on layer one Ethereum and create a representation, kind of a mirror image of that on our layer two, and call it whatever you want. We call it like sort of brand tokens. You can call it Pepo coin. You can call it uh, Tomer coin. Whatever you want. And the value of it is derived by whatever you have staked on layer one. And what you stake on layer one can be whatever you want. It can be ETH, it could be DAI, it could be the OSD token if you want to use the native token of our network that's also used to uh, reward the validators on layer two and as well as for the sealers who help improve the layer two transactions back on layer one. It's up to you. So on Pepo, we built it on OST just to show everyone that it's possible. We have other clients who are launching with OST as the base token. We have other clients who are launching with DAI, other clients are launching with ETH. USDC, we don't care. We're, we're, we're you know, agnostic. We just want you to build what's right for you. Ah, I like that approach. So you basically give the developers the freedom to decide what they think is best for their particular use case. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe at all ever in kind of forcing people to do something a certain way. They should figure out what's best for their business case. Um, and you know, we found so far is that developers and companies who are using, let's say, app tokens um, as kind of rewards or um, as a new type of currency in an app, a lot of them want to use it based on a fluctuating currency. And the, and when they, when they because they want people to feel like it is actually um, something that people come back and check often and that it's not just a, you know, a stable dollar. Um, but it's up to them. Others who have, let's say, lar- some companies are working with who have, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of you know, millions of users, and we are working with some, they go right away to stablecoin. They're like, you know what, we don't want to expose our end users to any volatility, um, which is fine. Like we say, it's up to you, whatever you want. And from in terms of having a token that has some fluctuation based on the market, 
that's where when most of our clients, if they look at the choice of, let's say, ETH or OST, uh, the token, they usually end up with OST because they say, well, if we choose ETH, it's basically the value of ETH is dependent on the overall market. We choose OST, it's just based on other folks like us who are building on OST. Um, and so it's a way for them to participate in the network itself. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, the second question I wanted to ask you about what you described earlier, why ETH? Why did you decide to build on top of Ethereum yeah. an ELC20 token? Yeah. Did you look at other alternatives? I mean, that, that, that for us was an easy one. We, we looked at... Um, you know, we wanted we wanted to build leverage the smart contract kind of structure of Ethereum and the technology. We 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 run a full EVM, a full Ethereum virtual machine on our layer two, and we have our the user experience that we have in Pepo, um, which is the same user the wallet SDK that's embedded in the Pepo app, and the same way that's going to be embedded in other apps. It's only possible because we're running all these smart contracts on layer two. Uh, that are exactly basically Ethereum smart contracts. Um, and so we went with Ethereum because of the smart contract capabilities. And then second, it's, you know, the most developers are building on Ethereum and they're continuing to enhance the, the network and the technology, the smart contract capabilities. And that's only going to get richer and richer. And our approach was go where the developers are. Um, and so if we want something that, you know, five years from now is continuing to evolve and to be assured that it's being evolved on the best kind of, you know, the best developers are working on it. Right now that's Ethereum far and away. Yeah. Absolutely. Everyone that I know who's building something of anything of interest of, you know, in crypto is building on Ethereum. I mean, it's the clear leader, like you're saying, right? The vast majority of developers right now are building on top of Ethereum, yeah. period. I look at I look at there's two there's two there's two groups out there. There's people who are building on Ethereum, which is like the you know the ninety percent of people in my who I know who are kind of building really interesting kind of projects on crypto. And then there's a ten percent who have in their mind that they could be the next Ethereum, and I wish them luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And coming from you, I keep thinking about like the Amazon example. It's like competing with Ethereum. It's it's a, it probably can be done, but it's a very tall mountain to climb. Yeah, and it's like the thing is, it's the thing is, you're not just competing with the technology; you're competing with, ten, you know, tens of thousands of developers who are committed to the technology right now. That's what makes it really hard. And so you have an open source community who are all really committed. And, and you think about how much kind of passion there is right now about building real use cases. Um, there's just so much momentum behind Ethereum that I think it'd be very hard to compete with it now. People will because you know if you see like probably you know the you know if not the number one or then the number two greatest return on investment in the last ten years was Ethereum, um, and so yeah I mean why wouldn't you try to build the next you know, Ethereum if you think you have a better idea? So thinking about Pepo, Jason, how do you distinguish Pepo from the many other social media apps out there? I know specifically you take great pride in the user experience on Pepo, would love to hear more about that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the, the first thing we set out to do is to uh, first find like an area where existing social media wasn't serving kind of user kind of needs. So the idea was not to just, you know, create another social app for the sake of social app or just create a crypto social app because, you know, for this, you know, just because you can. It was we really went out and tried to find a place and a kind of a need that people had for something, something in addition to what they're already using. And the process we went through to figure that out was 
um, we interviewed a thousand plus people in 2019. Um, and we started off just, you know, talking to people around their social media consumption, uh, what they were using different social media platforms for, whether it was Twitter or YouTube or Twitch or Discord or TikTok or LinkedIn or whatever it might be, Facebook, Instagram. And when we do these interviews, you're basically trying to find people's motivations, their pain points, and so their needs. And um, and the, the whole purpose of this was, you know, we didn't want to just, as I said, we didn't want to just build something. We wanted to build something that people would, would, would use and would really want. And so... Um, there are a few themes that we kept hearing uh, as we talked to people and we kind of, the way you do these interviews is you, 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 you hear something, you hear it from five people, you hear it from 10 people, and then you build a hypothesis around it and then you do the next set of interviews focusing on that. Right. Um, and the, a few themes we kept hearing, um, one was we found that, uh, that in a lot of kind of areas that kind of... Um, there was there were some gaps of kind of people f- wanting to feel more connected to um, communities, uh, to specific people who shared their interests, um, and they felt like uh, social kind of um, so social media like outlets like Twitter were great for kind of uh, um, let's say getting kind of instant flash bulbs of kind of like people just throwing things out there, but very anonymous and. Um, uh, the text, uh, you know, format with you know, the short character format was leaving people feeling a little empty. They felt like they were following kind of a um, like the headlines, but not being part of a conversation, not being part of a community. And we felt that, and we heard from the people who were joining, say, like Telegram chats, that it felt a little more connected in community, and same with like Discord, um, but it was very chaotic and. And then the other hand, we also found that uh, on new kind of emerging, say, video platforms like TikTok, that the short video format was delivering kind of a area of authenticity uh, that was missing from other social media. And I guess um, like Instagram stories were very polished. Uh, TikTok was kind of people kind of showing off and expressing kind of like uh, their you know, kind of um, kind of entertainment. And then, you know, over on the business side, we found that, like, let's say, like, LinkedIn was a place where people found, like, it had become uh, just full of a lot of spam and had, like, a lot of just, you know, people hawking stuff and kind of marketing and kind of uh, inbox spam. And so what we kept hearing uh, is, uh, one is we found a need for people to get, you know, more signal and less noise. So the ability to connect to people who shared their interests, who are part of the same community um, or kind of, you know, kind of whether it's an established community that they're in or something that that community they want to be part of or join, how they could connect to to those people uh, and be part of something and kind of feeling belonging to something, but without all the noise uh, and uh, and without all the spam and without all the harassment and the bullying. And so, and then we also heard from people who are creators, um, uh, whether it's, you know, developers, makers, to bloggers, podcasters, that they were looking for better ways to connect with their audience, um, to stand out, uh, to build support um, without a feeling they were begging and without feeling like that they were asking for tips. So I know that's a lot, but you combine these things and we kind of came up with was um, the, kind of this create a format for people to connect um, based on shared interests with a very authentic kind of raw kind of person to person video format to use cryptocurrency tokens as a way to um, both uh, support people, uh, and then to uh, personalize the experience, curate the experience, 
to help eliminate the spam and to combine these elements into creating kind of a new type of community network. Um, and, you know, where we've started is you know, kind of creating the social app for the crypto community, kind of we call it, but it's, I mean, really what we're doing is we're creating a community of communities of communities and crypto. I think one of the biggest learnings we've had even in the first, you know, kind of few months of, of Pepo is that, you know, we thought starting with crypto was a niche. And what we found is actually it's not a niche because uh, even within crypto itself, there's so many niches. Uh, and so you have like mm-hmm. people who are, um, so now we're getting, now what we're actually doing is getting even more specific and more granular. And, and so we're launching in a couple of weeks, uh, Pepo channels for people who have a very specific interest or are already part of a community to kind of connect to each other and have a much richer experience uh, in the app. And so whether you're interested in DeFi, kind of other people are interested in DeFi, if you're connected in, interested in, let's say, Bit, you know, Bitcoin maximalism, you can connect around that. If you want to connect around ETH 2.0, connect around that. And so, and, and that's following the users and listening to them and trying to figure out how do you make the actual application more useful and rewarding for them. Yeah, makes sense. How do you get the world out? How do you actually get more and more people to Pepo to try it out and to open these channels? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting you ask us, like, for the most part, all we've done to start is to, um, we got the word out around uh, DevCon, the Ethereum conf- annual Ethereum conference was in Osaka, Japan in October, where we launched a beta of the app. Uh, we had about a quarter to a third of all DevCon uh, attendees uh, check out the app. Um, we had some good retention from that, so people kept using it. And then we just kind of looked for people who were you know, active on Twitter, talking about crypto. And interestingly enough, we, we purposely said, let's not look for people who have tens of thousands of followers because they might not need this yet. But let's look for people who were already kind of hustling and looking for making connections, trying to make a name for themselves in the crypto community, but, not, but they hadn't yet kind of made it as a big star. And we just reached out to a bunch of them on, on Twitter and said, hey, check this out. And frankly, that's all we've done so far because we we told ourselves as as a, as a team is before we start to really promote this, let's make sure we figured out that we we've, we've created something that people find valuable. Um, and so, uh, you know, I keep coming back to you know we do interviews and interviews and interviews. You know, we have uh, seven uh, today, we had five yesterday, and we talk to users. We focus on users who are really grinding in the app. I would say grinding is like they're, they've created, you know, every week they come back and make new videos. Every week they're watching. Just to clarify, when you say interviews, you mean user interviews where you interview the users. Yeah, Yeah, literally myself, Emily on our team, other people on the team, we get on calls with people and we just talk to them. And say, why are you using this? You know, what are you trying to get out of it? And, and, you know, and, and it's amazing. Like there's, there's lots of motivations that people have for for using Peppa right now. Yeah, what are the common themes that you see so far? I mean, it's interesting. So I would say two, two related, but as I said, very different. So one theme is just the people, like I'd say overwhelmingly, there's this desire amongst crypto people to see a really successful crypto use case. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like they're rooting for the platform, they're rooting for the app, which means you're also rooting for the industry, right? Um, and so because of that, it's a really interesting motivation. So it's not just, it's not just about kind of, I need this. Uh, it's about, I want this to be successful because then it's going to show something to the, the community and to the world that 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 makes people also somewhat forgiving of like let's say all the features aren't complete yet or they're willing to put up with certain things mm-hmm. the other motivation we keep hearing is i want to connect with people who uh share my interest and uh and in a meaningful way meaningful connections uh and that's something that we're really now kind of really diving into uh and kind of leaning into because it's 
those connections could be, as I said, real world connections. It could be, you know, everyone going to Eat Denver, where you know we're going to be the the official social app of Eat Denver in February, um, and you know we're creating a channel on Pepo all around that. So it could be around an event, um, or it could be around a established community. So it could be like Bitcoiners in Tel Aviv, whatever it might be. Or it could be just people share an interest. And how do you make the connections that they make through Pepo meaningful and make them feel like they're getting something that they wouldn't be getting elsewhere? And we think we're really close to it. Uh, and we're, we're really excited about where it's going over the next few weeks. Got it. So it sounds like you're still working on the product market feed. You're pretty close to getting it right. And then you're really going to drive more marketing budgets towards acquiring users. Well, I'd say everything you said except for the last point. I don't know if we'll ever need marketing budget. We'll see. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, when we do interviews, we one of the questions we always ask is, you know, which of your friends have you told about Pepo, and what do you and how do you explain it to them? And when we get to the point where every interview is people saying, you know, I've invited ten friends because this is, you know, they're part of my group or they're part of my community, that'll be the marketing. Uh, and so the you know, it's it's very different than in creating something. Let's say like you know, TikTok is entertainment, and it's all about serendipity. Uh, so it's like, you know, I open the app and I hope I see something that makes me laugh. Pepo is all about community. So it's very purposeful. It's like, you know, everyone who's going to eat Denver, you know, join this group and we all benefit from it. Right. Makes sense. I mean, if you can go it, you know, by word of mouth and organically, that's the best, no doubt yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you know, it will, so we'll see. But, but look, we, we like our chances uh, and we feel like with the process, I'd always tell our team, it's like, Stick to the process. Stick to the process. The process. <laughs> right. Talk to the users. They all the answers lie in our users. Absolutely. And what's the business model, Jason? How do you guys make money? Yeah. So, um, so a few things. So, you know, OST technology is what powers the Pepo app, and our core business model is selling that technology to businesses who want to build apps like Pepo, uh, and so. We have, you know, basically there's a, you know, as I said, there's a wallet SDK that you use to kind of, you know, to basically integrate the wallet into any app. Uh, and the way that we're charging uh, companies for it is uh, they pay us per active user uh, in, in, per month. Uh, and so our, our introductory pricing right now is 25 cents per active user per month. And an active user is a user who transacts using our technology in that month. So just to make it really clear, let's say if you had 100,000 users and 10,000 of them did a transaction this month, you'd pay us 10,000 times 25 cents um, in that month. Uh-huh. So you only pay on those who actually transact, not on exactly. all that. Okay. Yeah. And, and that way, like, you know, it's like you're, you're paying for the value you're getting. Um, and we did a lot of, you know, market testing on this. And, I'm, you know, we, we think this is the right place for us to be right now. It'll, you know, surely evolve as we mature. Um, but, you know, we've got, you know, a dozen plus companies uh, from various sizes of, you know, startups to companies with tens of millions of users who are building with this technology right now. We have some great launches coming, uh, you know, February and March, April. This year is all about kind of delivering use cases. And Pepo is the showcase. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, the, our approach to Pepo is if, you know, if Pepo shows everyone what's possible and then Pepo also shows that you can have, you know, a crypto-powered app that you know becomes mainstream on its own right, then the whole thing will be even more more successful. Now, you know, if we turn around in a year from now, Pepo has you know tens of millions of users and you know has really cracked the code on kind of more authentic community. Um, I'm sure we'll figure out a business model there as well. Right, but but to be clear, it doesn't sound like you're planning to introduce advertising of any sort. 
No, 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 not, 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 not at all right now. No. I mean, you know, our goal is if, if you know, right now creators are making money through Pepo. So they earn Pepo coins whenever someone likes their video. Um, we have, you know, actually pretty amazing is of the first you know, few thousand Pepo users, they've done over, you know, $5,000 worth of purchase of Pepo coins in the app stores. And, uh, so we don't take a margin on that today, but we could in the future. We've had, you know, a number of you know, folks, you know, thousands of dollars worth of kind of cash out redemptions for gift cards and other things. And we could take a margin on that in the future, but right now we're really focused right now, create user value, and then we'll work on monetization later on Pepo. Right. Makes sense. And what's your next on your roadmap? Like when you think about this year, what are you most excited about? I mean, the things that we're really excited about is, so, um, I'll, I'll name three things coming. So one is, uh, for ETH Denver, which is uh, the 14th of February. Um, so, you know, basically, you know, just a few weeks from now, uh, we are introducing a whole bunch of new features on Pepo, um, in particular, uh, Pepo channels. So enable kind of groups and events to organize, you know, on Pepo, um, and to have kind of their own space on Pepo. Uh, there also be a number of ways to have, you know, better kind of video creation and better kind of, uh, kind of use a, a feed on Pepo. We also, as one of the channels, as I said, will be Eat Denver. Another one is going to be a project we're doing uh, with Consensus that's going to be launching at uh, Eat Denver that we're very excited about. And we'll have more, more information about that soon. So that's one thing. Um, a second thing is uh, we are working with a, a media company uh, that's a, it's a, it's a content business that, so that has about a million visits to their website every month, um, reading their articles that they publish. Uh, and they are building uh, basically uh, their app right now that has our tech OST technology built into it uh, and will enable uh, their users to earn tokens um, by, uh, by engaging with the content, by uh, engaging with their sponsors and advertisers, uh, and then to use the tokens back in some very unique ways. Um, so that's something we're looking to launch uh, in the uh, in Q1 uh, of this year. Uh, and then we're also, we've been working with a, uh, a major uh, kind of offline, online uh, kind of retailer experience that has, um, they have 95 uh, kind of locations uh, and very loyal kind of, um, almost like a cult-like uh, kind of customer base. Uh, and we're looking at uh, the first launch with them is imminent. Uh, and then rolling out to hundreds of thousands of their customers over the course of the next few months. And so uh, some really exciting stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are big numbers, especially in the crypto space. Yeah, I mean, like, so, you know, it's, it's I tell you, you know, having, having worked on this for four years now, um, it's so encouraging to kind of see some of this stuff, you know, coming to fruition. I yeah. Mean, when we got to the point last year in March, April, we saw, all right, our tools are usable. And then it's like, okay, now we turn from building to building plus you know, launching use cases. And now we see kind of going into this year that like we've got use cases lined up in February, March, April. Like it's like just back and each one creates another one, creates another one. We've had so many people coming to us in the last few months saying, I want to do what, what you're doing at Pepo, I want to do that in my app. And so it's like, you know, people need to, they need to see it's real. And once, and so every time we launch one of these use cases, I think it's going to create a cascading effect where we get more and more and more. Yeah, it's amazing, right? As an entrepreneur, when you work on something, it's like your baby. When you yeah. see other people start using it, I mean, it's a feeling unlike anything else. Absolutely, yeah. How do you protect users? How do you protect them from, 
abused, being told, or maybe you don't, and it's just an open platform and anyone can express their opinion in any way they want. Yeah, I mean, Peppa as a platform right now is interesting that the authenticity of being uh, kind of front-facing camera, you know, people, it, it, there's no abuse on the platform because it's very hard to be abusive when you have to show your face. Um, and so that's one thing that people comment a lot on is that like the kind of the rawness and the authenticity of Peppo keeps it a kind of a, a, a nice environment. Right. So you have to show your face. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you, I mean, you can't respond to someone else's video by just like you know, filming a wall. And, uh, mm-hmm. that, right. So it's like, um, so, right. so yeah. And so by, by having, being you and and people really, they take pride in who they are and they're building like their personal brand. We, we had users like number one of the number one feature requests is how they can, you know, create, you know, even a better reflection of their persona of, uh, on Peppo. So I want to like you know, edit the thumbnail when I kind of post a video or share it and make sure that people see me as I am. And so, um, yeah, so, yeah, so, so we're committed to authenticity and, um, I guess realness right now. Got it. And, um, wanted to ask you also about the team. So I know you're based in Berlin, right? But a large portion of the team is actually based in India. How do you manage a team that's distributed geographically? Can you share some best practices and yeah. how do you do it? I mean, the first thing just to point out is that I've been I've been doing it for 12 years. So it's not something you know, that everyone can do easily. It's a t- uh, the, one of the reasons why it works really well for us is just, you know, my co-founder, Sunil, and I, we started working on a you know, company called Social Media in, in 2008. And you know, we've co-founded that company. Uh, we had 12 people on the team. Of that, 11 were in Pune, India. Myself was in New York. But I basically lived in Pune for half the year that year. And, you know, we had that as, as a nice success. And then we, we sold that and went to the next company, the next company. And we kept working together. And, you know, so a lot of that original team is still with us. And so you, we've built up this kind of one is you have like this trust of how to work, you know, how, you know, how to work together and resolve conflict and how to you know, get things done that you just build up over 12 years working together. And you know, the average person in, on the Pune team of ours is, I think, with us seven years at this point, which is just extraordinary. Right. And oh, wow. And but then also it's just you, know, you also learn the cadence. You learn how to like, you know, how to do, you know, you know you know, like you know, you know, the tools that you use, whether it's you know Zoom calls and Notion boards, or you know, and the tools change over time. It used to be Basecamp, now it's Notion. Um, at one point, it was Jira. We now everything's you know we're we're doing in Notion. Uh, you know, there's a group of us that are in Pune a week out of every four or five weeks, uh, and you just get you just you know you you figure out your rhythm and you, and you do that. And you know, our team right now is you know we're about eight I think eight or nine people in Berlin. Uh, we're uh, 40 people in Pune, India. We have three in Hong Kong and four in New York, uh, which, you know, you have to coordinate all that. But uh, there's, there, there's also a lot of benefit of having the team uh, spread out like that. And why did you decide to build the team out of India? So I get that you had prior experience building teams out of there, but how did you get there to begin with? Uh, it, it wasn't even ever even, it wasn't ever even a choice. So it's like, um, I remember that is like, I think by the other way is I never thought of, of not doing it because Sunil and I have built six companies together. So this was like 2016. It was like, okay, which one are we building now? And he's based out of uh, India? 
And Adapuna, yeah, sorry, I should mention that. So, yeah, the, the, the more proper question is why Berlin? Uh, and why Berlin is uh, pretty much for the most part is because there's two people on our team. One is Francesco, who is the head of product, who I work very closely with. And the other is Ben, who's the head of blockchain, who are based here in Berlin. And, uh, you know, and then you know, my home base is Berlin. And so the three of us, our home base is Berlin. And the three of us go to India together a week and every month. But, you know, it's like if Francesco and Ben were in New York, we'd be based in New York. If they were in Lisbon, we'd be based in Lisbon. Right. I love that uh, line of thinking. So just getting to the end of the interview, a couple of questions more broadly, Jason, about the market. What are you excited about right now in the crypto or the blockchain space in general beyond, you know, OST and Pepo? Either specific companies or projects or maybe even just trends that you see that you're excited about in the, in the space? Yeah, I mean, I think you, like I'm, I'm, my, I have like these blinders on of like what we're focused on, which is you know, use cases, use cases, adoption. Um, and so I, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is I think 2020 is the year that we turn from, you know, a lot of, you know, you had like the, the boom of 2017, the crashes of 2018, 2019, and 2020 is like the, you know, the, the year of use cases. And, you know, whether it's through us or through other projects, I think when we start to see that, you know, people are using this crypto stuff and it's not just being used to, um, for trading, but it's actually being used for, you know, for, to, for, for, you know, for, for user benefit and create you know new types of services that are you know, that are unique and um, that's that I think is one thing that that uh, you know, I think is, is the 2020 is going to be known for uh, the beginning of really interesting use cases and then the other is um, you know I think we we've gone from blockchain being mostly about the plumbing and the infrastructure to now turning towards uh, user experience and because you know, that that goes hand in hand with kind of use cases and adoption and I think it's it's most encouraging for me to see like a lot of teams that are kind of focused on not just how does this stuff work and how to kind of deploy it but how to get people to adopt it and how to create you know, I call it, you know, create crypto user experiences for humans um, you know not just for developers and uh, and so I think we're gonna see a lot of really awesome innovations this year on on UX um, and then more broadly I think you know like I don't get you know too hyped up about kind of the you know what's going to happen with eth one o to two o migration or or you know ethereum versus bitcoin or other battles for layer one chains i I look at it as like uh you know focus on getting the getting these products in the hands of people um and the rest will follow right so addressing real pain points and solving for real needs of users exactly. And crypto is just a tool to yep. to get there. Yeah, makes sense. That's actually really interesting. Sorry. I've got a pitch deck that I show to uh, you know corporate pitch deck of like the, our company that I show to people and explaining what we do. And blockchain is not even mentioned to the third page because what we do is we enable you know low cost, almost like zero fee microtransactions. And the benefit of that is that you can embed that into any application and start to have. Any in-app action, you know, transfer value and the step function change from kind of the today's credit card processing. Then page three is now how do we do that through blockchain, right? And that's on purpose because blockchain is the enabling technology. Crypto is the enabling technology. It's not the the what, it's the how. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I see that all the time. Some of the entrepreneurs I talk with that I'm most excited about 
actually don't put blockchain front and center. And sometimes they don't even mention that until, you know, we get to the more technical due diligence, right? Because it's about the problems that you solve and why is that important and how big is that opportunity, right? How do you do that? You know, we can get there and we will get there at some point, but it shouldn't really matter much to the users, right? And I keep giving that example of, you know, when I pull up my phone and I press that button and call an Uber, do I really care as a user how come once I press that button within like three minutes, a car shows up and picks me up? Exactly. I don't, right? It just exactly. solves a need. So completely agree with that. And I think actually many entrepreneurs do a disservice to themselves by putting crypto and blockchain so much the center of what they're doing. The marketing and the way you talk about your company shouldn't really be about that. Until you get to the how, like you said. Yeah, and, and look, I, we'll get there. I think it's because a lot of blockchain has been talking, it's like talking to ourselves. And now as we go and we talk to the world, you talk about solutions, not about technology. Yeah, I mean, the best solutions are the ones where the, you know, the backend technology is invisible. So you barely realize it's there. Like the best solution actually on top of blockchain would probably be something that you use and you don't even realize that you're using blockchain on the backend. Exactly. So last question before we finish, Jason. We talked a lot earlier about Ethereum. What's your take on Bitcoin? You know, I, I think you know, Bitcoin is still, you know, the, uh, you know, the original, right? And it's still the, um, you know, the, the most, you know, if, I, I say, if I, you know, if, if you bet on one global currency, uh, digital currency, uh, I would bet on Bitcoin over any other right now. But I think Ethereum is going to be the leading kind of development platform for cryptocurrency. And we'll see where those two go over time. I don't, you know, maybe at one point it becomes a one versus the other. I think like the, the fights between the maximalists are a little kind of overdrawn right now. But in the future, it could be. Um, and, uh, you know, if I were to bet on, you know, Bitcoin over Libra, I would bet on Bitcoin right now. Interesting. Yeah, I agree with the notion that the Bitcoin and Ethereum are probably more complementary, at least the way they're set up now, rather than one versus the other. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to do this interview. A super interesting discussion and appreciate you being so open and honest also about your previous experience. Hey, look, thanks for having me and um, you know, keep, keep at it. I love what you're doing. I'd love, you know, love to be a part of this. And um, you know, hopefully this whole community, we can move forward together and show everyone that there's real value to be had in crypto, not just an appreciation of the assets, but an appreciation of the experience. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.